Well, turn with me in the Word of God to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2, this evening we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him once again and ask for his help this evening. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us, for the fact that you have not left us alone, that you have not created everything and then let it run, but you have revealed yourself to us, first of all, in creation and also especially in your Son and in the inscripturated word that we have. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would be with us as we look at these verses from the book of 1 John, that he would illumine us to understand the things that he inspired John to write all these millennia ago. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come back to our series in the book of 1 John, remembering somewhat where we have been, we can remember that at the beginning of this letter, John begins by sharing his credentials with the people to whom he is speaking. The people in these church, or church is rather, in Asia Minor, who are really being uh, taught some wrong things. But it seems some false teachers and some schismatics have come in and have said certain things, have believed certain things, have acted in certain ways, and are beginning to tempt the believers to go off in their own way. And so John, as he commonly does, writes and tells them exactly why he is writing. We see that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. The purpose of this epistle is this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he writes this epistle in order to give assurance to people, those who believe in the Son of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, I'm sure many of us have recognized over these weeks as we've been going through this first chapter and a half of the epistle, he is not writing in the same way that the Apostle Paul writes. It's not necessarily a logical order of one sequence of ideas to the next, to the next, to the next. He kind of goes in cycles. He goes in circles, perhaps we could say. And as we understand this, we can begin to see that if you take some of the things that he says out of context, you can get into some very deep water. And so it's important for us to remember why it is that John is writing this epistle. That no matter what he says, no matter how he says it, his purpose is to give assurance to those who are believing in Jesus. And he is saying this as an apostle, as the I, as he even begins in verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you. The one who has seen Christ, the one who has experienced Christ with his senses. And so we'll see three things, especially this evening. The first one is the fact that the light is here. And then we'll see the two responses, really, of walking in certain ways in response to that light. But first of all, the light is here in verses 7 and 8. And it's very interesting, isn't it, the way he begins this section. He calls them beloved here in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. But an old commandment that you have had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word that you have heard, 
At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, if you're anything like me, when I was probably 11 or 12 years old, remembering reading 1 John for the first time, perhaps you read those words and think, what is he talking about? How can it possibly be the case that this commandment is old and new at the same time? How can he be speaking about the same thing? Isn't this a contradiction of sorts? Well, what John is doing here is he's beginning to show these people, these people who are wondering, who are doubting, who are perhaps being in the process of thinking of being led astray by these false teachers, by these people who have come in and have left the church, that there is something here that is old and new. Something that's enduring, something that is connected to history, it's connected from what God has done from the very beginning, and yet there is something new about it that is great. There is something new about it that's powerful. There's something new about it that brings hope and comfort and even assurance to the lives and the minds of those who believe in Jesus. And so the first thing that we can consider here as we consider these commandments is really the concept sometimes you read in theology books called the two ages. Now, I recognize that we haven't all read the same books. We haven't all had uh, the opportunity to be exposed to the same sorts of ideas. But the two ages is really this idea that there is this, this present age, or this age, which is the age of darkness, the age of sin, the age where the dominion and the realm of sin is strong, or at least present. And then there's another age as well, the age that we're looking forward to, the age to come, as it's sometimes called in, in the Apostle Paul. The age where we see these things being rolled back, where it's the realm of righteousness, where things are as they were created to be. And you find again and again in the New Testament this idea popping up, whether explicitly or maybe not as obviously, but it's behind a lot of the writings of the apostles. Because you see, there's this understanding that when Christ came, something changed. When Christ came, something new came onto the scene, that there was a new stage in redemptive history. You'll see in verse 8 that it talks, he talks about the darkness which is passing away. The darkness is passing away. It's the same kind of thing that we find a few uh, verses later in 2.17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We can think of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. The present form of this world is passing away. And so what John is telling his readers, what John is telling his listeners, what John is telling these people uh, whom he identifies as his beloved, as the ones that he loves, the ones that he is shepherding, the ones he is caring for, is that there is a new age here. And the old age is passing away. And he uses the examples of light, the ideas of light and darkness to explain this. That the light is already shining, he tells them, and the darkness is passing away. Sometimes it's difficult perhaps for us to recognize the fact that the darkness is passing away, isn't it? Because we look around us, we look at the world, we look at uh, our city, we look at the church, we look even within ourselves at our own hearts and our own desires and our own motivations and begin to realize there's still sin out there. And there's still sin in here. There's still sin within us. Yet what John is saying here is that a decisive moment has come. A decisive victory has been won. We can think it's perhaps the idea of an old empire that's strong at one point. 
It's full of mighty warriors, perhaps the Persians, as you think about them, and they were just rolling over people left and right. There was no one who could stop them, not even the Babylonians, not even the mighty Egyptians. None of these people could stand against them. And yet eventually their time ran out. And so although they still had warriors, although they were still strong at that time, as Alexander the Great is coming in and, and conquering their territory, their empire is at an end. They've taken body blow after body blow, and these things are taking a toll on them. That even though they still exist, they're fading away. Even though they still exist, they're passing away. That is what the darkness is doing right now. It's very similar to what John said in his gospel in John 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's speaking there about Christ, about the word, about the logos, the one who was with God and the one who is God. What John is reminding his readers here, what John is reminding us is that Christ has come. Christ has come as the warrior. Christ has come as the one who brings the new age, who brings the light, and the light is shining, and the darkness, far from not even being able to overcome it, the darkness has been defeated. The darkness is beginning to disappear. The darkness is beginning to be on its way out. I remember... When I was in seminary and I would work as a security guard at a retirement home in Escondido. And one of the joys of that was working from midnight to 8 a.m. I would not recommend it if you don't have to. And so I'm out there doing my rounds in the dark and I have my flashlights and my golf cart with the headlights on. And I'm kind of stumbling around, partly because it's dark, partly because it's 2 a.m. But I'll always remember the feeling that would wash over me when the sun would begin to rise. And I'd be sitting there looking at the monitors, or I'd be out of my rounds, and I'd look over the foothills off in the distance, and I'd see that just that speck of light, just that line of light beginning to rise over the hills. And everything would begin to become more clear. The flashlight would go away. The concern about running into something or stepping in something that I didn't see would go away. All these things became much more clear. And you realize, once the light comes, once the sunrise begins, the darkness can't do anything about it. The darkness is fading away at that point. And how ridiculous would it be for me at that point to still act like it was the time of darkness, to still use my flashlight, to still be stepping very uh, gingerly around, making sure I'm not going off the trail in any way. How foolish would it be to act like the sun had not yet risen? And yet, as we consider where we are in the history of redemption, as we consider what Christ has come and what Christ has done for us, and the fact that the light is already shining and the darkness is passing away, we would have to admit, don't we, brothers and sisters, that there are ways that we live, there are ways that we walk, there are ways that we exist in this world where we do not act as if the light is already shining. We do not act as if the darkness is passing away. And there are a number of ways we can do this. We could probably fill out the rest of our time just listing them. But how often do we, as those who have experienced this light, who have received Christ, who are resting on him, do we act in selfish ways? Do we act in ways that put ourselves first? Do we act in ways that indicate that we are saved by our own works, by our own righteousness, that there is not a Savior for us, or perhaps something that happens to those of us with especially weak consciences where we despair. 
where we look around us and we see all the sin around us. We look inside of us and see there's still a battle to be fought in that arena. We begin to wonder, is this really true? Is this really something I can take comfort in? Is this really something that can buoy me up? Is this something that can give me assurance? Uh, Well, the Apostle John reminds us the light is already shining. In a very real sense, the new creation has already begun. What we're waiting for has already arrived. And that's how we can speak of this old commandment and new commandment. How is this an old commandment? Well, it's really, as we'll see, especially in the weeks to come, the commandment to love. A commandment that John has given to these people that they have heard themselves. It's an old commandment because it's not something that John is just making up on the spot right here. We think about what the law of God ultimately is, how it can be summarized. And boys and girls, you've probably heard this passage from the book of Matthew where someone asked Jesus, who or what is the greatest and first commandment? And of course, what's the answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As Paul says in Romans 13, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is not a new commandment because it's been there from the beginning. It's older than Moses. It's older than Abraham. It goes all the way to the beginning, all the way to Adam and Eve. In fact, it goes all the way even before that because it's grounded in the very nature and character of God himself. Now keep in mind what these people are hearing in what we now know as Turkey is that there are those who are coming who have this new revelation of some sort. This new message, this new understanding of the way to God and the relationship of Christianity. What John is saying is no. Stick to what's been here from the beginning. Stick to what's connected to history. Stick to what God has been doing from the beginning. To obey this commandment, to write to you to obey this commandment, that's an old commandment, the commandment to love. John says something very similar in his second letter, in 2 John verses 5 and 6. Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And so he's calling them to love. He's calling them to love each other, to love the brothers and sisters around them. And he's saying this is an old commandment. Something that's been here from the beginning. Something that should characterize the life of a Christian. The life of a believer. The life of one who is trusting in Jesus Christ. And notice how he calls them beloved in verse 7. And then he calls the beloved on the beloved to love. He's saying something very specific here. And that is the fact that we have been loved by God. That we have been loved by the Father as he sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to live for us, to rise again for us. That we have been loved by Christ. He's already said these things in his cycles all the way through in these first two chapters of 1 John. He's repeated them again and again because he wants them to be remembered. That this begins because of God's love for us. And so this is an old commandment, an old commandment that's been there from the beginning, a commandment that they've already heard, but it's also a new commandment, and we can ask how. See, now we're getting to the crux of it. How exactly can it be new if it's already old? 
This is something that's all the way from the beginning. It's grounded in the very character of God himself. How can this be a new commandment? Well, because the light is already shining. Because Christ came and something changed. This commandment is new in a sense because we're new. That those who are trusting in Jesus Christ have experienced the light in a profoundly life-changing way. That we have seen Jesus come, we have called upon him, we have heard his gospel, we have responded to it, and the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. He has made us new, that he's continually remaking us into the image of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here uh, in verse 8. It says, it's true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. True in him and in you. Perhaps we could translate that as truly expressed in him and in you. What he's saying is Christ has come. The light is shining. Christ has come and loved his people, and his people are to, as a response, love each other. It's a new commandment, not that no one has ever heard this before. It's a new commandment, not that anyone has ever said this before. It's a new commandment because Christ has come and brought about a different state of affairs. He has come and brought the new age with him, that he has brought the light that's already shining. And this new and old commandment can only be kept from a place of assurance, as we'll see in just a moment. But the light is already shining. And that brings us to our second point. Okay, if this is true, if this is how things are, if this is what Christ has come and done, then how are we to respond to it? And how can we understand how other people respond to it? Well, as John has done before, and he will do again, he gives two examples. Two hypothetical individuals who really aren't that hypothetical. These are the kinds of people that were in the churches to whom he was writing. And the first person is the one who walks in darkness. Notice in verse 9 and 11, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's speaking here of those who make a false profession, of those in the churches then and those in the churches even now who claim to know God who claim to have this experience of him, to have this relationship with him, to claim to be his children and to be a part of Christ. And he's saying these people are professing Christ falsely. He's saying that the light that is already shining will work itself out in the life of a believer. And if you claim to know the light and you walk in darkness, you are automatically saying that this is not true. You are showing that what you're saying and what's actually the truth are two different things. And unfortunately, in a group of this size, I'm sure many of us have come to know people like this. People who claim to be Christians, people who claim to know God, only to see them walk away. It's a painful experience. It can cause you to wonder and to doubt. It was causing these Christians in the first century to wonder and doubt because they were dealing with pain of their own. How can these people who have claimed to know God, who have been here in with us and among us, how can they walk away? It can even begin to cause fear for yourself, can it? Well, if they claim to know God and they walked away 
And I claim to know God, and I could possibly walk away too, right? Remember, John is writing this for assurance. He wants to comfort those who are truly believers. And so he gives this sort of test, as you see it here, in these, uh, this last half of this section. The test, really, of hatred. Now, that seems strong, doesn't it? The idea of hating your brother. And sometimes in Scripture that idea has to do with the idea of murder and that sort of thing. Here, although it's not perhaps that explicitly, uh, that explicit of a hatred, it seems to be something that is something that goes against the good of your brother. So what John is saying here is that there is this group of people, there are these people in the church who are claiming to know God, claiming to know the light, claiming to know the one who is love, and yet they're walking in darkness because they are hating their brother, hating those for whom Christ died, hating those who are in the church with them. You can ask, well, how are they hating? Is there some sort of physical altercation that's happened or any of these other very extreme things that perhaps our minds go to? Well, maybe. We can't really say, but it seems that there's something even less obvious going on here. And one of the things that John is saying is one way to hate your brother is to present God in the wrong way. One way to hate your brother and sister is to teach them wrong things about the God who is light and who is love. In verse 10, that phrase, uh, in him there is no cause for stumbling, speaking of the other individual, not the one who is walking in darkness, is perhaps instructive for us. It's really the picture of putting something in the way of someone else putting something in their path. Boys and girls, I don't know if you do the same things that we did when I was your age, but in school, one of our favorite things to do, and this is, this is bad, don't do it. One of our favorite things to do was wait until our friend was about to sit down in a chair, and of course, what would we do is their back was turned, we'd take the chair out from underneath. I remember that was a big deal in first and second grade. That's causing a brother to stumble. Not in the same way. It's not actually putting something in front of someone. It's taking something out from under them. But it's that same idea. Causing someone to fall. Putting something in their path or taking something out of their path. Causing them to go in the wrong way. Causing them to experience pain or to uh, go backwards in a sense. And so this is how hatred is worked out. There's causes for stumbling in one who hates his brother. One who walks in the darkness. And John says that one who walks in the darkness is blind. One who walks in the darkness has been blinded. One who walks in the darkness does not know where they are going. It's an important thing for us to remember. If someone comes to you and says that they know God, but they walk in darkness, they hate their brother, What John is saying for us to remember is that person does not know where they're going. As flashy as they may be, as good-sounding as they may be, as intelligent as they may be, if someone comes to you and says that they know God, they know the way to God, they know the path, and yet they are not loving their brother, but they are hating their brother, that person is walking in darkness and that person is blind. That person does not know where they are going. I've broken two bones in my life and one doesn't count because it's my nose 
but I broke my nose playing laser tag in a dark basement. I would not recommend that either. And I was in a hallway. I was, had my sights on my prey, my friend Kyle. And I thought, he's going around the corner. I'm going to cut through into this main room, and I'll get him there. And it's pitch black, or just about pitch black, just enough for me to see that there's an open door. It wasn't an open door. It was a door that was very dark that looked open. And so I ran headfirst into it at full speed, and next thing I know, I'm waking up, looking at the ceiling with blood coming out of my nose, and I've had a bump on my nose ever since to commemorate that event. I didn't know where I was going. I was walking in the darkness. I thought I did. I thought I had each and every single idea squared away in my head. I'm going to do this and do that and do this and do that, and I'm going to get him. And I walked right into a door. That's the picture we have here in 1 John 2. That teachers of darkness are walking in darkness. That they don't know what they are doing. They don't know what they are saying. They don't know where they're going, no matter what they may tell you. People of darkness, teachers of darkness, like to say they're in the light. They like to say they know God. What John is reminding us here is that we are to test them. We are to test them and to see if they truly know the one that they claim to know, if they are walking truly in a way that befits those who know the light. And that brings us to our third point this evening. Those who walk in the light in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It just seems quite simple, doesn't it? And perhaps we're tempted to think, well, how can we ever possibly know that there is someone who is walking in the light? After all, aren't we all sinners? Yes, certainly. How can we know that we're professing Christ truly? Because John is saying there are those who profess Christ falsely and there are those who profess Christ truly. How can we know these things? How can we be confident of these things? Well, because God is light and the light is already shining. That the one who knows the light, the one who is trusting in Jesus, is absolutely walking in the light. Not perfectly, not without sin. John's already covered that. And he's going to keep covering that. Remember, 1 John is in large part a series of cycles. He wants his listeners to remember these things, but he is saying that God is at work. The new age has dawned, and there are those who are truly professing Christ because God himself has done the work for them. God himself has made them new. And instead of a way of hatred, as we see these people who are walking in the light, we see it's a way actually of love. What does abiding in the light mean? Well, there are a number of things that we could say about that, but as we look at the entire context of 1 John, it seems to be in this instance the idea of loving your brother and sister, of loving the one for whom Christ died, loving the one in the church alongside of you. Loving can be difficult, of course, can it? It sounds great, it sounds wonderful, and it is great and wonderful. I don't want to say that. But to remind the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, what could be greater than that? But of course, then we meet our neighbor, don't we? We recognize that the ones that we're loving are sinners and that we ourselves are sinners. It can be very difficult to love. It can be very difficult to love those even for whom Christ died, even those who are in the church with you. 
But John is reminding these people that God is light and those who know him walk in the light. You see, if we take uh, verses 9 through 11 on their own and just try to make them a test to see if you are in Christ or not, it's going to lead to despair very quickly, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I don't perfectly love my neighbor. I see that even in my closest neighbors, my siblings, my parents, my children, I understand how often I fail to love them even as I love myself. I recognize that I cannot say I am without sin. But remember, John's already covered that. John's already reminded these people of those sorts of things. What he's saying here, and this is, if you take one thing away from tonight, let it be this. When John is talking here about walking in the light, he is not talking about a qualification in order to come to God. To use an illustration I heard this week in a completely different context, this is not a resume. You know, you're looking for a job and you go into the uh, employer and you perhaps are seeking to be employed by them and you bring a resume and it shows all of your best qualities, or at least you hope it does if you do it right. And you have all these technical terms that you think might make you sound better. And the idea is if you're qualified enough, if you've met the qualifications, then you get this position, you get this job, and that's wonderful and that's great. It's a wonderful feeling. We have a temptation to turn our works into that, don't we? Even to turn walking in the light, loving our brothers and sisters into something that's a qualification for us, something that's really a resume. That's not what this is. Walking in the light, loving your brother and sister, brothers and sisters, is not a resume. It's a name tag. It's an identification. It's evidence that God is already at work within you. And certainly it's not perfect. We already understand that, that there is someone who is a propitiation for our sins, Jesus Christ the righteous. The one who has come and lived and died and rose again for us. But what John is saying here is the gospel bears fruit. The gospel bears fruit. It results in changed lives. It doesn't just get into your head, but it gets into your hearts and your hands and your feet. And there can be great confidence there. There can be great assurance, not because we are earning this by our works, because they're qualifications, but because they are fruits and they are evidence. Not because they are a resume, but because they are a name tag that identifies us as one who is in Jesus Christ. One who is trusting in the only Savior. And so those who walk in the light not only love their brothers instead of hating them, but they can also see instead of being blinded. That verse 10, no cause for stumbling. They're not placing obstacles in others' paths. They're not the blind leading the blind. They're not running around in the basement trying to get their friend in laser tag and running into things. These are the people who are in the light, who recognize that the light is already shining, that Christ has come, that he has changed things for his people. And if you think about it, this seems surprisingly simple, doesn't it? That is this what Christianity really is? Shouldn't there be more to it than this? If there's this wonderful, great God who is greater than anything we could imagine in our heads, who is pure light, who is pure love, who has done all these wonderful things, who has created all these amazing things in his creation that we can see and will never come to the end of, shouldn't it be more complicated than this? 
I admit there's that temptation in my head as well sometimes to think there has to be more to it than this. But what John is telling us here is that this is what Christianity really is. No matter what someone comes and tells you who says that they know God, who act as if they're a spiritual have and you're a spiritual have-not for not understanding the complexities that they understand, who walk in darkness, who hate their brothers. This is what Christianity truly is. It's believing in Jesus. It's trusting in him, resting in him for salvation, and it's following him. John is going to get into a series of commands here in these next uh, few verses. But he's already set the stage for why we obey them. Christ has come. And this is the foundation for what we're supposed to do in our lives. Christ has come, and the light is already shining, and the darkness is passing away. And so what is God calling us to do in this as we close? He's calling us to trust in Christ, to recognize that the light is already shining, that Jesus Christ has come as the perfect Savior, and to throw yourself on his mercy and grace, and then to follow him. To love your brothers and sisters because you have first been loved by God in Jesus Christ. Christ has bought you. He is a propitiation for you. He is the one who speaks on your behalf in God's presence. He is the one who ever lives to intercede for you. He has loved you since before the foundation of the earth. And so you are to love one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this section of 1 John that reminds us of the fact that the light is already shining. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that Christ has come, that he has changed things for us, that we can take confidence, that we can have assurance, even though our own works are often dark, that we still have sin mixed in with them. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a greater view of the greatness and the glories of Christ and of you, the one who is pure light. We ask that you'll be with us as we go about our weeks, that your spirit would remind us of these things and give us confidence to know that we can begin to obey, not in order to be qualified, but because it's evidence that you are already at work for us and in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.